They shift him from right to left. Play action to that side. Rolling right, looking. Fires in the end zone. Got a man. Oh, touchdown. That's a tight end from 15 yards out. Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 3, Episode 1. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season, and today we are joined by the National Coordinator of College Football Officials, Steve Shaw. And later on in the show, we will visit with University of Nebraska Head Football Coach Matt Rule. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you like today's show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Our first guest was named the National Coordinator of College Football Officials in March of 2020. Prior to that, he served as the Coordinator of Football Officials for the SEC since 2011. He also coordinated the Sun Belt Conference. He's officiated in 14 bowl games during his career. Please welcome to the show, Steve Shaw. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Nick. Uh, It's always a pleasure. I know you've held a lot of important roles in the officiating world throughout your career, but none more important than the one you occupy now. Can you give our listeners an overview on what it means to be the national coordinator of college football officials? Well, it's a it's a dawning uh, title. And uh, but really, our, our main goal behind it. And if you if you look at our officials, if you look on their left shoulder, it has CFO. Uh, and that's for college football officiating, and it's an LLC. The commissioners are our board of managers, and uh, the original goal was this, was to get, you know, our football game is such a national game, get all our conferences together in terms of rule interpretations, in terms of mechanics on the field, and officiating philosophies, what we call officiating standard now, and it's such a national game, you know, the players, the coaches, the fans deserve you know, one approach from officiating. And so that's our goal, one CFO. So the West Coast doesn't do it different than the East Coast and that sort of thing. So um, that's a big challenge. But then also I work with our coordinators. Each conference has a coordinator of officials, uh, you know, not only to drive this one CFO, but really recruiting strategies, um, rules development. That's another big part of my job. I'm the secretary rules editor. And so rules development and player health and safety. So it all kind of wraps up together, Um, you know, many times just becoming the national spokesperson for officiating. And nobody wants to hear from officiating until something bad happens. But uh, that's really the the net of the role. Well, obviously, you love college football. You've made a career out of protecting it. What is your take on bowl season and its importance to the thousands of student athletes who compete and the millions of fans who are invested in watching the games? Well, let me first say, you know, and in, in people don't think of it, but the officials have a role in this as well. But uh, I think for the teams, you know, being able to have a goal and a vision is so important. And teams are in such different places. You know, some teams just want to make a bowl. And then some teams want to make a New Year's Six Bowl. And some teams want to go to the the, the playoff and, and all of that. So it creates this environment that, puts a goal out there, puts a, a standard for them. And really same for our officiating uh, community as well. You know, as an official, uh, you know, you want to perform well enough to make a bowl. And then once you're going to get into that group, you want the best bowl available. So I think that's great. But I think for fans too, um, I mean, you think of that December, early January window 
I mean, bowl season dominates TV and it's, it's really what people talk about. So it's the culmination of our season and it means so much And the history and the traditions in our bowls. You mentioned I've worked a lot of different bowls and each have their own set of traditions and things that they do. Uh, and it's just a great way to kind of cap off a great college football season. Well, you've been a part of some big bowl games over the years. You, you officiated in 14 of them, as I mentioned earlier. Do you have a most memorable moment or a, a call from a bowl game that, that you've been a part of that really sticks out in your mind? Well, um, you know, you, you do. So first of all, let me say very lucky that in those games, there's not a memorable moment from a negative perspective. You know, not that we were perfect, but we didn't have any major things that impacted games. But you go back and think, you know, I, I got to work two national championship games, the 2000 uh, Sugar Bowl and the 2005 Orange Bowl, you know, very memorable games. That that Orange Bowl was Florida State, Virginia Tech, when Michael Vick was there, an incredible game. People forget, I mean, Florida State won, but Virginia Tech came back in the fourth quarter, took their lead. You know, Michael Vick, this was kind of his coming out party. He played an incredible game. Um, so, you know, a lot of great memories from that. Uh, the the other national championship game, you know, USC with Bush and Leonard, that whole group, you know, what a great team playing Oklahoma. We had two uh, Heisman Trophy winners in the game. So a lot of memories there. All of the games have special memories. I think, so as a referee, the the white hat, the, you know, the the crew chief, I always think back to the toss, you know, the, the bowls do so much around the toss. And over the years, all the celebrity tossers, you know, from Jerry Rice, John Goodman, Shaq, Paula Dean, you know, uh, Cloris Leachman, the San Francisco Dons, the football team. I mean, pretty amazing stuff. But one that's kind of a special memory, my first Rose Bowl game. So you're always, you know, not uptight, but you're excited, ready to go. You know, the blood's pumping. And and so uh, Mr. Rogers was our celebrity tosser. They take whoever's the grand marshal, you know, does the toss. And so we, we had a practice session the day before. And so uh, Kevin Ash with the Rose Bowl, many people know him. Uh, he came up to me and he said, well, Mr. Rogers not going to make it today. He's resting up for the toss for tomorrow. And I thought probably doesn't need to rest up that much, but we went on. So, um, but I asked, I said, Hey, I'd like to meet with him a few minutes before, you know, we go out just to make sure we've got all things in order. And he said, we'll take care of it. So we did. And so we're on the sideline, you know, six, seven minutes before kickoff. And so I, I asked Mr. Rogers, I said, have you ever tossed a coin? And he said, no. And I said, well, let's, let's practice real quick. And so I handed him the coin, you know, they have this commemorative coin. And so he took it and then it just kind of boom, dropped straight off. And I said, okay, Mr. Rogers, we got to get a little air under this thing. So we practiced on that, got it kind of where we could live with it. So now, you know, they have the, all the pageantry, the national anthem, the big stealth bomber flies over. I mean, it's incredible. And we're standing there. We've got the captains, myself and Mr. Rogers game face on ready to go out. And my side judge, Bobby IA, I mean, right before we go out, he walks over in front. He said, Mr. Rogers, he pulls out his game card. He says, Mr. Rogers, can I get your autograph? And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. We're getting ready to kick off. And and then Mr. Rogers, so gracious. Yeah. What's your name, Sonny? And, you know, so uh, it, it's all the the circumstances around the game that you remember so much and and having your family there is so important as well. So uh, but honestly, the memories in my on-field career with bowl season uh, is endless. And uh, it's so much fun to kind of go back and revisit those. 
Steve, your YouTube shorts uh, on the NCA resources page have been uh, very become very popular, taking football fans week by week through controversial calls. It gives you the opportunity to further explain the rules of the sport. How important is that for you to educate people on the rules of the game throughout the season? Well, it's so important. You know, we started that originally directed at the the TV talent, um, you know, to help them understand the rules and 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 our words are inform and educate. It's really, it's not necessarily just designed to take those, you know, controversial calls and say correct call or incorrect call, but it's really to understand the rules, how the officials approach it, what the philosophies and the principles are. And so that's what we try to do each week. And and it's it's been amazing. Um, you know, we the the viewership on that has grown, and th that's when when the NCA put it out there on YouTube. Uh, it, it kind of uh, grew. We we do a kind of an internal training tape each week for the officials. And that's where I use officiating jargon. This, we really direct it more toward the public. And and the goal, like I said, is inform and educate, not really, you know, weigh in as it's a good call or an incorrect call. And uh, we've got great feedback. And, and for your fans out there, there is a way to give feedback. So if you watch them and you have, hey, I'd like to see a, a play of you know, this type, you know, we get those requests and we'll try to find one of those to put out there just from a rules perspective or how officials work that. But uh, yeah, it's something that we will continue this year. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the internal training tape. I, I I know there are a lot of unknowns in the world of officiating to the average fan. That's probably one of them. Is there a process, and I know there is, uh, a process in place to determine how officials are selected, how they're trained, how they're evaluated, how are officials held accountable for their performance on the field? Yeah, that's a question, Nick, we get a lot. And, and I, you know, I want fans to know there is high accountability uh, with our officiating. Now, it's not always public accountability. Many times, like a coach will discipline a player and they'll do it, you know, internally. We, we really try to do as much of that uh, internally as we can. But, you know, there are, you know, you lose games if you, if you don't perform. You know, ultimately, if you don't perform, you know, you're not going to come back. And, and so there is high accountability and, you know, the officiating crew is really a team. We always say they're the third team on the field. Every game they're evaluated. I mean, not just on their calls, they're evaluated on every play, their movement, their mechanics, their judgment, all of that kind of goes in together. And, and just like the players get a film grade on every play, so do our officials. And that combined together for the year really determines your postseason eligibility and, you know, where you stack up in that ranking. And so as the national coordinator, I'll assign our bowl games out to our conference coordinators. And then, you know, typically if they get assigned a New Year's Six game and that's their top game, then they'll take their number ones in every position. So, uh, you know, people call them all-star crews, but, you know, we're familiar with each other. That works very well. Um, and, and so that as an official, you're working very hard all season, you know, on your evaluations, you know, first to get invited back the following season, but then second, a drive for postseason eligibility. And then, you know, just like the teams, yeah, now we're eligible for the postseason. Let's let's get as high a bowl game as we possibly Yeah, I want to uh, – let's talk about that a little more, Steve. We, we all know that teams that have successful seasons are rewarded by – being selected to participate in bowl games. And as you just mentioned, similarly, the best officials at the end of the year are selected to officiate those games. 
Uh, tell us a little bit more. How does that process work and, and how do you go about assigning crews to the various polls? Yeah. So we, the first thing we do is avoid any conflict. So if you're a big 10 official uh, and, and people may not know this, but we have partnerships and officiating. So like the Mac and the big 10 are part of the same program. So if you're a big 10 official, you could never work a big 10 team or a Mac team in a bowl game. And so the first is you can't have any conflict uh, from the assignment perspective. And, and so what really happens is each coordinator of each conference will rate all of their officials, you know, from top to bottom. And then based on their bowl assignments, which come from the national coordinator, you know, we'll, we'll organize their groups. And sometimes, you know, you may have a number one referee and, and a number two umpire, but they work well together. So sometimes there's you know, a working relationship that you want to keep together. So you may have a one and a two working together. But at the end of the day, we're we're focused on putting our absolute best officials in the bowl games. And, you know, I, I you, you don't want to say elite, but as you work up the line, when you get to the New Year Six, that's an elite group of officials that performed well during that season. And, and not only is, you know, are they being recognized for their performance, but then you know, it's just like the team, they get the honor of going there. And, and, you know, the bowl, the bowls themselves, I mean, they do a great job of entertaining and, and making it a great experience for the players and coaches, but they, people don't know, but they usually have a, a subgroup and that's their role is, you know, to make it a great experience for the officials, everything from picking them up at the airport to dinners and, and activities and that sort of thing. So make no mistake, it's business when we go there, but, it's an opportunity and the bowls do such a great job of allowing. And, and, and I will say this, and I mentioned it earlier, but um, you know, think about the the families of an official. I mean, during the season that official's gone, you know, people think, well, you know, 12 weekends, they're gone. No way. They're, they've got camps and clinics and scrimmages. So there's a family investment into an official. And many times the official will take their entire family to a bowl game. It's kind of reward for the whole family, you know, especially the spouse for holding it all together while the official was gone. So uh, a great process, but I can tell you, you know, as an official, there's great pride. And, and I even compliment you. Many people don't know this, but a lot of people know that y'all send shirts to the teams when they become bowl eligible, you know, and they can all cheer and put on their bowl season shirt. We did that last year for the officials. That was a great hit. I mean, that's a prized possession for that official. Now they've got their bowl season shirt uh, as a reward for what they've done during the season. Well, just like the best teams are bowl bound at the end of the year, the best officials are bowl bound as well. So it's it's all part of that process. A couple more questions, Steve. I want to focus on the rules a little bit. One of the largest hot button topics in football right now is the targeting call. Tell our listeners what constitutes a targeting call and what was the purpose of instituting that rule? Yeah, so I know and a lot of fans, because targeting carries a disqualification, uh, that's really what propelled it to, you know, front and center. But, you know, if you step back, the targeting rule is a player safety rule. And quite frankly, we had to change player behavior uh, or we, we were at risk of losing our game. I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but we had to make some changes and the targeting rule with the disqualification and disqualification is harsh, but the most important commodity to a player is playing time. Uh, 
And when they lose playing time, that gets their attention. So the disqualification part really captures the attention of the players. And the expectation of the rule is to change how players use their head helmet uh, in blocking, tackling across the board. And so um, basically what we have, there are two types of targeting. Uh, one is, and one that most people are familiar with, is targeting a defenseless player, whether it's the quarterback throwing a pass or a receiver over the middle or a blindside block. But so if you target a defenseless player, there are three things we look for. Is that player defenseless? And, and so that's the first thing. The second is, you know, is there an indicator of targeting by the player? You know, is there a launch, uh, you know, lowering of the head, leading with the head? So there, there has to be an indicator of targeting. And then finally, forcible contact to the head or neck area of that defenseless player. And if all three of those are there, and, and replay actually now looks at it, and they have to confirm all aspects. So they have to confirm all three or we overturn it. People know, you know, in replay, you have confirm, stands, and overturn. Well, we don't have stands in targeting. You either confirm all aspects or overturn it. And the thought there is we don't want these can't really tell. It's it's a stands. We don't want to disqualify a player on that. So we've done that. And that's been helpful to it. And then the other type of targeting is targeting with the crown of the helmet and crown being the very top. And that's when a player, this is probably the most dangerous, when a player lowers their head and leads with their head and, and makes contact with the crown, forcible contact to an opponent, doesn't have to be defenseless opponent, any opponent with the crown, then that's a foul and, and it carries the disqualification. But let me just say this, as much as people don't like it, Really, over the last three years, our targeting numbers are going down, which is a great, great um, statement for the game. Uh, players now are better in the use of their helmet and really is saving our game, but most importantly, is protecting the student athlete. So, yeah, I know there's always consternation when, when your favorite player is disqualified, but remember, it's a player safety rule and we're really trying to do it to change player behavior, and it's working. The NCAA Football Rules Committee released eight major adjustments to the rule book in January of this year. Uh, those will be implemented heading into this season, just a couple of weeks. Can you give us the highlights of those and what fans should look out for when they watch games this year? Yeah, the, um, the biggest thing that we'll notice, we've got three changes in our kind of clock procedures. Uh, and those will be most noticeable. And the first is, and, and let me just say why those are there. People just have, have kind of said, well, that's because, um, you know, they just want to shorten these games. They're getting too long. But it really it really is not that. Uh, the reasoning behind it was threefold and driven a lot by our commissioners and our rules committee. You know, first it was to keep the game moving, pace of the game you know, fans want it to keep moving, players do, the game runs better, so keep the game moving. The second was to modestly take out a few plays of the game. Uh, you know, people may not know it, uh, last year in FBS, we averaged about 178 plays per game. Compare that to an NFL game last year, 151 plays. Nobody would have thought our college players playing that many more plays. So modestly reduce, we don't have a target number, but we want to modestly reduce the number of plays. And then finally, another area was uh, consistency in officiating mechanics. And I'll talk about that a little bit. But 
the three changes that'll be noticeable, number one, and the biggest is now on first downs, we're no longer going to stop the clock to award a first down except for the last two minutes of each half. Now, that, I think that's a beautiful difference between the college and the NFL game. If you're late in the game and you don't have timeouts, you still have a chance. Get a first down. The clock stops. You got a chance to get set. So we're keeping that part of it. But other than those last two minutes of each half, the clock's going to run. Keep the game moving. Um, the second change is now a coach or team can no longer call multiple timeouts in the same dead ball period. Really focused on, you know, we've all been there. Uh, defense has three timeouts left. We're into the second quarter. They're, the other team's going to try a 35-yard field goal, and we call three timeouts to ice the kicker. And, uh, you know, you, you lose five minutes of your life that you never get back. So now they can call one timeout in any dead ball period, and, and that's it. And then, and then finally, the third change is, um, you know, when we have an accepted foul at the end of a quarter, we've always extended that. We bring back, we extend that quarter, run another play. Well, now we're only going to extend in the second and fourth quarter. Uh, in the first and third quarter, if there's a foul, we're still going to enforce it, but it'll be to the start of the next quarter, you know, again, just to keep the game moving. So, those are the three things from a clock perspective that, you know, the fans will notice as we go through the season. Well, that's great information, Steve. We, we really appreciate you joining us. You know, you mentioned earlier, officials are like the third team on the field, but unlike the other two teams, uh, people don't want to know you're there. Uh, they only know you're there when they, when they get upset at you, but it's a, it's a tough job. You do an unbelievable job of preparing the officials across the country to do as as good a job as they can possibly do. So we, we appreciate all you do for the game. Thanks again for being on the show and good luck to you this season. Well, Nick, it's my pleasure being on and, and <clears throat> I'd be remiss if I didn't end my time thanking all of your bowl season teams. I mean, from the executive director all the way down, uh, we, we appreciate what you do with our officiating community and it means so much to those officials. And so uh, a big thank you to to all of your bowl season uh, leadership. Thanks, Steve. I'll, I'll pass that on. Our next guest is embarking on his first season as the head coach at Nebraska. The New York City native played linebacker for Penn State before starting his 25-year coaching career. This will be his eighth year as a college head coach overall, including four years at Temple and three years at Baylor. He returns to college fo football after a three-year head coaching stint in the NFL, Please welcome to the show the head football coach for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, Matt Rule. Coach, thanks for joining us. Wow, it's good to see you, Nick. Thanks for having me on. We know it's a busy time of year for you, uh, getting ready for the season to kick off in uh, uh, just, just a couple weeks. want to go back, uh, start uh, during your playing days at Penn State. You were part of some powerhouse football teams there. Undefeated 94 team, won the Big Ten, went on to defeat Oregon in the Rose Bowl in front of over 100,000 people. Uh, you defeated Auburn uh, in the 96 Outback Bowl in Tampa. You defeated Texas in the uh, in the Fiesta Bowl. What amazing experiences those must have been. Tell us about your time at Penn State and specifically how meaningful and memorable those bowl games were for you and your teammates. Well, you know, I, I love Penn State. I love playing for Coach Paterno. Um, some of the players I played with are my best friends to this day. You know, I don't think there's anything like college football and as you said, you know, you know, I was I, I was a kid who walked on, you know, just trying, you know, I knew I wanted to coach, trying to find a way to get on the field. And, you know, lo and behold, my first year we're, you know, we're in the Rose Bowl, you know, the, the granddaddy of them all, you know, and uh, uh just an amazing experience. You know, as you said, going down and 
played in the Outback Bowl in 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 a, in a pouring rain. Um, uh, it was just a one of those kind of iconic moments, you know, uh, the, that Auburn team. I think they had, I think they had Cadillac Williams and Ronnie Brown. I can't remember. I, they, I can't remember. They had some great players. You know, I, I just remember them. But, um, but then I had a chance to play. I played in the last two bowl games. I played in the Fiesta Bowl against Texas. You know, I played in the uh, Citrus Bowl against Florida, and um, you know, I, th- those are those are you know uh, life moments for me. Moments that I'll remember for the rest of my life, and not just the playing in the game, but um, you know, the travel, the experiences, the the excursions, um, the time with your teammates, and really for me as a young player, you know, trying to go from being a walk on to getting on the field, that was that was a time for me to practice and play and get an opportunity to show what I could do, and I think I made some jumps in that time that allowed me to eventually get on the field. Now you have a very unique coaching road. You've coached, I don't know if you've thought about this, assistant or head coach in five different FBS conferences, Mac, Pac-12, American, Big 12, and now the Big 10. I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) Well, you know, conference realignment is a big, big thing right now, as we know. Uh, Given those experiences, do you have any particular thoughts on conference realignment and the impact that it's having on college football? You know, um, I'm one of those people, I'm always hesitant to say something's bad until like you experience it. Cause sometimes things we think are bad are going to be great. That being said, I'm, I'm kind of a traditionalist. I love college football. Like, you know, I, I'm one of those people who wakes up and, you know, wakes up to watch, uh, you know, uh, Arizona, Arizona, Arizona state. And then wants to watch, you know, Washington, Washington state, then wants to watch army Navy. Then wants to watch, I mean, I love the iconic games. I, I miss the backyard brawl. Um, so I miss some of those, those elite um, conference traditions. I miss some of the, you know, even the rivalry, here, game, the rivalry games. Yeah, the know, rivalry games. seem to have gone by the wayside a little bit. No yeah. doubt, man. But, you know, I think that's part of the thing, you know, as we talk with you and I've talked about bowl games, like sometimes you have the opportunity to, to now with conference realignment to play some of those games. And um, I think there's so many memories, but I think it remains to be seen. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this new world order. I mean, I know at Nebraska, we're lucky to be in the big 10 and, and the big 10 is changing. Um, so, you know, I'll just kind of reserve kind of my opinions and just see what happens. Um, but I do miss, I do miss some of the great, great, great college football traditions and rivalries and, and some of the things that made it great. Yeah, that's a good, good answer. Now you made some, uh, very interesting comments at the big 10 media days on the culture of Nebraska football. Part that stuck out, uh, the most to me was you wanting to your graduates, uh, the players who go through your program to say, my life is better because I went to Nebraska. You went out to talk about the culture of young people in general. I want to know your stance on building men who play football and not football players. What can you and the University of Nebraska do for the young men in your program? Yeah, I think anybody that works for me knows that that is our purpose. You know, we have, a, we always thought we, there's a mission and a purpose in everything you do. And our mission is, you know, we want to, we want to build champions. We want to, you know, we want to have a great football program. We want to hoist a trophy. Um, but our purpose is far greater. And um, our purpose is to make sure that we do build men and the best men that we can build and young people that someday look back and say, you know what, uh, they poured into me. And as a result, my life is better. And so I think you can absolutely do that. I think, um, you know, now with NIL and, and some of the different things, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to look at it as professionalization, but 18 year olds are still 18 year olds, 22 year olds. In fact, if you talk to a lot of psychologists, an 18 year old today is kind of like a 15 year old was 10 years ago. And that's nothing negative about them. It's just society and, you know, post COVID and all the different things they've been through just, you know, they need, they need to come to college and have experiences. They need to, they need to have relationships. They need to build resilience through connections. And so I, I think our, our young people have never been more vulnerable and, 
you know, if you treat them just as football players, Nick, um, they'll probably do well at football, uh, but they won't be as resilient. They won't be as uh, uh, vibrant as they could be if you treat them as people. And I think that's, you know, even even being in the NFL and seeing the amount of stress and anxiety those guys go through, you cannot you cannot take your identity from what you do. Uh, I can't, you know, I'm not a football coach. I'm a man who coaches football. And I'm, I'm certainly a father first. And so I just think that message is one that's um, powerful. Uh, I think that's one that you can say, but you have to live by, has to guide every decision you make. Well, you know, typically a new head coach is, is, is a new head coach for a reason. Uh, typically there's a little bit of rebuilding that needs to happen with the program. You're obviously no stranger to that. Uh, let's go back uh, a little bit to your first head coaching job at Temple. You were there for four years. Your records were two and 10, six and six, 10 and four, 10 and two. And that final year, 2016, you won the only conference championship in school history. And I want to know, I, you know, I've known you for a while, but I didn't know this till I looked it up. There's only been three 10 win seasons in the 76 year history of Temple football. You had two of them back to back. Interesting. Uh, I'm giving you a lot, of, a lot of facts you didn't even know about. <laughs> Feel good about um, myself right now. <laughs> tell, tell us how you were able to build that program the way you did. Well, it was unique because I was there on the front end, right? So I was there with Steve and, uh, with with uh, Al Golden. I thought Al did a masterful job of getting that program from like the seller uh, to being really relevant and going to bowl games in the MAC. And then I was there with Steve Adazio, you know, great coach who came in and brought a an energy and a vibrance to the team and uh, got to a bowl game and won the first bowl game since 1979. So there was these different steps that I was a part of. Left and went to the NFL. Steve had a chance to go to Boston College. I came back. And really what it was, was we had a talented group of young people. But we had made the step from like the Mid-American Conference into the Big East, which then transitioned into the American. So um, for me, it was, hey, we just we were just young and not good enough yet. Um, but the pieces were there. Steve left the pieces. And so, you know, P.J. Walker went on to become the all-time leading passer in school history, I believe. You know, Hassan Reddick was a walk-on. Deion Dawkins started left tackle. The, the, There's all these NFL players, Tyler Matikiewicz. All these guys were there. They were just young. And I learned, Nick, um, that you could do your best coaching in the years where you're losing. So in that year when we went 2-10, and 10, and we didn't win our second game till the till the last game, so we were 1-10 at one point. Um, I, I remember we were 1-9, and nine and we were up 21 nothing on UConn. And it was so cold. They had an interim coach in TJ Weiss. It was so cold. Our guys came out and really didn't want to play the second half. Um, they came back and beat us 28-21. And we went out that Monday in full pads and we were like, hey, the standards of the program are we're, we're, we're going to play, whether it's cold or not. If we're not going to play on Saturday, we'll play on Monday. And those guys emerged that week and they went out. And we beat we beat um, uh, Memphis 42 something. And so I learned like, hey, you know what? You have to be patient with players. You have but you have to at the same time, like you have to do your best coaching in, in the times when you're losing. And so we got the next year, we got to six and six, but didn't get to go to a bowl game. Then we got to 10 wins, but we lost the championship. Then we got to 10 wins and we won it. So um, I looked back on those 10 win seasons. It was like, hey, our best job was the first year where we kind of kept everyone, you know. So then I walk into Baylor and I had to do the same thing all over again. But it was the lessons I learned at, at Temple, which guide me to this day. But I, I give a lot of credit to the coaches who came before me. They left those players there. We just were, we were, they were young. We just had to grow them up. Yeah, that's a good point, coach. Every, every rebuilding uh, challenge is different, right? Uh, based on what you have that's left for you and what you have to work with. You know, you mentioned Baylor, similar story there, three years, one and 11, seven and six, 11 and three. You inherited a very different type of program there. There's a little bit of uh, turmoil going on. Um, you defeated Vanderbilt, the 2017 Texas Bowl. 
which looking back, you know, seemingly launched your program into the following season, which culminated in a birth in the Big 12 championship game, as well as the Sugar Bowl. What were those experiences like for you and your program? And maybe talk specifically about the role bowl games play in the development of a program and how they can set the stage for not just be a reward for uh, the current season, but really launch a program into the following season. Yeah, you know that that um, that 2018 season, you know, especially after going one to eleven, and we kind of went through the same process of, hey, one to eleven teams need good coaches too, and if you say that your purpose is to build men and help them have better lives, then you have to help them through one and eleven, and so that one and eleven year, just you know, trying to build connections and relationships, help them through the toughest time of their lives, and I think the good thing was Nick, a lot of those guys recognized then, like, hey, when we lose, the coaching staff doesn't turn on us; they're right there with us. So we got to the next year and we were five and six. We go to play Texas Tech. They're five and six. We're five and six. Winner goes to a bowl game. And our guys went out and they played and they won. And we had a chance to go to the bowl game. And I remember a lot of things about the game. It was a back and forth game. But I'll just say the impact a bowl game can have on a university and a program first. For a university that had gone through the worst thing in its existence, right? That had gone through a scandal that every fiber of what it stood for, you know, was questioned and it was almost embarrassing sometimes to wear your Baylor stuff, you know, for, I think for alumni and fans, at least for some people, they shared that with me. I'll never forget after the game, we bust back to the hotel. We were spending the night there. It was in Houston and walking into the hotel and lined with family, friends, but just, just Baylor people. And just the band was playing. Dr. Livingstone, our president was there and just the pride everyone felt to say, you know, we had hit rock bottom, but we had we had risen, we had come back, and I I think a bowl game can do that. Um, a bowl that bowl game was earned. <laughs> there was so much misery and there was so much heartache that went to that bowl game. But to your point, we also had a bunch of practices, man. We also had a bunch of experiences, and sometimes young people don't know what they can do until they see it, and they were able to go to that bowl game, see what a bowl game was like, see what it meant to be one of the best teams in the country. Um, see what it meant like to, to, to play an SEC team, and we won the game. And I think that those extra practices, those experiences, I remember we lost the rodeo to Vanderbilt, and I brought the team in the next day, and I absolutely got after them. And they were like, Coach, it's, it's a rodeo. I'm like, we're from Texas. Like, we're not supposed to lose the rodeo. And the point being like, like, hey, you're here to compete. Like, you're here to get better. You're here. I believe life is about excellence. And, like, you have these moments and you have to show excellence. And so whether it was the rodeo at the Texas Bowl or the game itself, our guys got to experience excellence a little bit more. And we hit the next year, man, running. And we won 10 straight uh, or nine straight um, until, you know, until the end of that year. So um, we wouldn't have done what we did in 2019 had it not been for the Texas Bowl. You talk about the experiences. I think as we get older, Coach, you you – you tend to uh, cherish experiences more. You look back the experiences you had and you appreciate them more. I think it's hard for, you know, 18 to 22 year old kids to, to understand that when it's happening. Um, you look, you think about the experiences that bowl games provide for these, these, uh, these kids. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind from all your bowl game experiences, either as a player, a coach, something that happened uh, at a bowl game uh, during bowl week or game day that, that, that uh, you think about from time to time? Yeah, I, I think probably there's probably several. I, I think one as a player, I don't even know if I should say this one, but you know, I, I we used to have a group of guys we'd run around with. We're playing in the Fiesta Bowl. We're down in Scottsdale, and and um, you're playing the University of Texas, and we're like we couldn't find our buddy Joe Juravicious. We're like, where's Joe? And so we walked into one like you know, there's like a country music place, 
And there's the entire Texas football team, or at least all their old linemen. And there's Joe Jervis sitting in the middle of them and they're singing boot scoot boogie. And I think I always remember that because, you know, there's a brotherhood as members of the Penn state football team. There's obviously a different brotherhood as members of Texas, but there's also a brother shared brotherhood of being a college football players. And, and you know, you know, guys sacrifice a lot and go through a lot. So to sit there with those guys and, you know, sometimes we see fights on the field, we see bad, you know, sportsmanship, but you know what? We were, we were all there, you know, that day, just kind of being brothers in football. And I, I always remember that and appreciate that. Um, but I think for me, you know, I think, I think again, I, I'll always go back to winning that, that Texas bowl game, right. Watching Charlie Brewer, my quarterback who, you know, he came to Baylor on faith when it was going through nothing, never even took an official visit, just enrolled mid year and seeing him up on stage, wearing the cowboy hat as the game MVP, um, seeing how his teammates all loved him so much. And they weren't like, why am I not the MVP? They were happy for him. Um, I think those are the moments you remember, right? Obviously the game's the game and you love to go back, but you go back and watch the game, just remember the experiences that you had and all the fun that you had. So uh, I think those, those are the ones that stand out uh, at least until we get to one here. Well, coach, I couldn't have teed it up better. You, you, you led right into that transition. Nebraska ranks ninth all time in bowl game appearances with 53 ninth all time in bowl game victories with 24. Forgive me, coach, but you have not appeared in a bowl game in any of the last six seasons. I almost feel like I have to say that again. Growing up, you turn on the TV in December, Nebraska's in a bowl game, right? I know you haven't even coached a game yet, but how important would it be for your program to win six games and play in a bowl game this year? Well, I think it would be it would be great for our players because these guys have these guys have stayed here and stood by the program. And I think, you know, when you get here, you talk to the players. There's so many guys that are diehard Cornhuskers, and they want to be part of the group that got it back on track. So to to play in the postseason, obviously, would be a step in that direction. I think it'd be great for our fan base. You know, no one travels, no one cares like like Big Red Nation, right? So I think they 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 need that, and they they would want that. Um, but you know, I was walking to a basketball game one day, Nick, and I was you know I'm kind of just walking from my office down to the Pinnacle Bank Arena and. There's about eight to 10 young guys, college age guys walking. They're like, coach, what's up, man? I'm talking to them as we're walking. Can't remember who we're playing. And the one guy said, coach, any bowl, like, please, we don't care what it is. Just get, get us to a bowl game. Like we're, we're fourth year seniors. A couple of us are fifth year seniors. And we came back for one more year. Um, we could have graduated and gone on our lives. We came back for one more year. Like we want to go, we want to go to the pep rally. We want to go play golf for a week. We want to go. And so, just seeing what it means to the students. Because when you're a student at the University of Nebraska or anywhere and your team's playing good football, you're proud. And when your team goes and plays in a bowl game, you're proud. And then, you know, when your team plays against a team from the SEC or ACC, or you get bragging rights. And so, you know, I, I believe that college athletics truly are the front porch of the university. And when people see excellence from the football program, they recognize that there's excellence everywhere. And it, it's unfortunate maybe that's that way. Like, you know, that I'm I'm a I'm a botany professor on campus doing amazing work and people only know the football program, but that is that is society and it is what it is. So if we can best represent excellence by playing in a bowl game and playing another conference, well, then we hope that we're representing everybody at the University of Nebraska. And then finally, man, we need the practices. <laughs> I've got a young team. I, I need every practice I can get. I need them to go down to the bowl game, go out and have fun, go to an event, show up the next day, practice, go back to another event. I need them to get good at football. And so uh, we're going to do everything we can to get there. 
That's a great message, coach. You know, people forget there's 130 FBS institutions, only 12 spots in the, in the new playoff coming up. Not everybody can be in it, but programs are different stages in their development. Some are, some are rising young programs. Some are historic programs like yours that are trying to rebuild. You don't go from where you are now to a playoff uh, overnight. You need kind of need those, those steps and those building blocks. And I think you outlined that pretty good. Um, last question for you, coach. You spent the last three years coaching the NFL. Now you're back in college. What are the biggest differences between coaching in the NFL versus the college game? Well, you know, certainly for just, you know, the season is a lot longer, you know, there, you know, you coach three preseason games that, you know, 17 regular season games, it's a little bit of a grind, but you know, football's football, you know, players and coaches are players and coaches. I just think uh, you have an unbelievable opportunity here at the collegiate level to impact and, and alter, you know, uh, people's lives. You know, it, it's, it's a very transactional environment in the national football league and as, as it should be, right. You have grown men uh, in scouting, you have grown men in coaching, you have grown men playing for you, but here, you know, I tell our coaches sometimes, you know, in the NFL, you coach here, we train, we're teaching guys how to play football. We're training them in the right way to play football. And then we're also helping them, you know, learn how to impact the community, learn how to be a great teammate, learn how to be a great student, learn how to change their lives and, and have unbelievable opportunities because of the sacrifices they make. So we touch so many more aspects of their life in college than we were doing in the NFL. Um, the NFL was great. I've had two stints there. Awesome opportunities. Awesome. You know, working for Tom Coughlin was amazing, right? Working with the players, working with Christian McCaffrey and Safan Gilmore or JC. I couldn't, I'm so grateful for the guys I had a chance to coach, but there's so much purpose here at this level. And so uh, you have a chance to do something that you feel like is greater than just football. I love football, but uh, impacting people is also important. Well, I, for one, I'm glad you're back. You and I have been friends for a while. I'm a fan of you personally and professionally. College football needs more guys like you, Matt, to, to be honest, and the uh, game is lucky to have you back. So uh, thanks for joining us, Coach, and good luck to the Cornhuskers this season. Thank you, my friend. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. If you liked today's show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening. <music>